Hello and welcome to another episode of the Smarter Securities podcast from Global Custodian in partnership with SWIFT. I'm John Watkins, Managing Editor of Global Custodian, and today I'm joined by Matt Johnson, Director in DTC's Digital Strategy and Platform Management. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, very, very good. Thank you. Uh, very pleased to be talking to you guys again. and uh, Thank you for the opportunity. I can't, I can't think of anyone better, to, better suited to talk about settlement efficiency today, Matt, though. Given you've got your own podcast at DTCC and you write a fair few articles as well, maybe I should start viewing you as competition instead. <laughs> I'm, I'm blushing right now. I know you can't see me, but I'm blushing. <laughs> well, look, it's always good to, to talk settlement. And at this moment in time, there's so much to talk about. This really has risen on everyone's agenda over the past two years in particular. You know, to start with, Matt, what do you, you think has been the main catalyst of settlement's rise to prominence recently among you know, news coverage, panel discussions, even regulators, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I think you can't really go further away than those four infamous letters, CSDR, which has, you know, undoubtedly brought settlement issues to the broader community's attention. You know, the, the CSDR's settlement discipline regime has really amplified a couple of things. Um, we've amplified a lot of things, but a couple of things being, obviously, EU settlement performance versus other global jurisdictions. And two, which is maybe more importantly, how long trades actually fail for in Europe. I think over the years, especially in Europe, we've accepted trade failure and the regulators have now taken the view that this is no longer acceptable. So one of the main aims, as you know, of the discipline regime is to improve EU settlement performance by introducing discipline measures by way of penalties you know, and possibly buy-ins. And this has captured the attention of the front office because the easiest way for a firm to see revenue reduced is via trade failure, just a fact. So this cost has now expanded due to the introduction of foul trade penalties. And when you think about it, operations teams, whether it's middle, back office, they're all cost centers. They don't have the ability to generate revenue, only the ability to protect revenue or in worst case scenario, lose revenue. And I think that's why the attention is now so high. I totally agree. And like you say, the, the percentages are higher, the, uh, the, the, the amount of time they're failing for is higher and it's it's interesting we've had a lot of these you know unprecedented I'm using air quotes which is not a good idea on a uh, audio podcast but you know these unprecedented situations which keep driving the, these rates up but you know looking at ESMA data and even some information we've had from the from the Fed you know these rates have stayed high after March 2020 um so you mentioned CSDR you know it's coming to force is there anything you've you've seen in the first couple of months that, that you could tell us about? Are there, are there any takeaways or is it too early? Uh, yeah, I think well, to, go, to go to the unprecedented, Mark, I mean, I don't think we've ever used that much, that, that word much as a community as we ever have over the last couple of years. And you're so right. I mean, unprecedented situations, you know, and you, you can't ignore COVID, right? I mean, COVID literally turned operating models upside down for every single sector in the post-trade space. I mean, pre-COVID, uh, the average settlement rate across Europe, or I should say the failure rate across Europe, was around about sort of three and a half to maybe five percent worst case scenario. Obviously, when COVID hit, the volatility just went through the roof, especially in the equities market. And that had a huge negative uh, negative impact on settlement rates and settlement performance. Now we've got CSDR's settlement discipline regime in the mix. And it's kind of like as if the market hasn't had a chance to catch its breath. Um, yeah. Of, of course, the settlement discipline regime has only been live for, I think, just under three months now. Yeah. But it became very clear very quickly that there were still certain parts of the post-trade infrastructure that still weren't ready. 
Now we saw some CSDs not being able to calculate penalties and so on. Different custodians taking different views of providing daily fail data to their participants mm -hmm. and having no real kind of unified standardized way of that settlement network providing trade status messaging. I think the biggest changes were buy and sell side firms really interrogating their processing models yeah. to understand where these gaps were. And I think that led to a broad reduction of automation, which is a good thing. Mm. So positive number one. Um, we've also seen um, by industry accounts and industry re uh, regulation is the, the uptick in auto partialing, you know, where firms are starting to auto partial where possible, as much as possible, which limits their penalty exposure, which again, I think will become a positive trend. So there's at least two clear positives yeah. from this. But more importantly, the biggest takeaway is post-trade participants are asking themselves now, how do we reduce as many manual processes as possible? Yeah, Matt, and I know you're, you know, you're an advocate of a few things, but certainly automation is one of them. I mean, how can further automation then play a role here? And we're talking about sediment efficiency and where would you say market participants are at in general on their journey towards automation? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, but not glad because people are probably sick and tired of me banging on about this. But um, the only way, in my opinion, to improve the chance of transactions actually settling on intended settlement date is to completely automate their post-trade processes. I mean, it's quite simple to me. The more times a transaction is manually manipulated or touched, means the more chance it has of failing. Um, so automation allows pretty much all of the relevant data points to be collected as close to execution as possible. And by data points, what I mean is all the attributes that a CSD actually needs to set a trade, whether it be economics, taxes, prices, SSIs, place of settlement, all that kind of stuff. And also the barriers to entry for automation are now just unbelievably low. So I can't see a relevant argument as to why a firm would still rely on manual processing when the tools are readily available and they have been available for many, many years, to be honest. I mean, of yeah. course, that being said, there's a vast amount of firms that have embraced automation and they're absolutely reaping the benefits and they're the ones that are protecting themselves from things such as the discipline regime. But it's that small percentage of the market that either can't or won't automate that are going to continue to be the problem and cause issues for everybody else that may be within their settlement chain. Yeah, I, it's not just yeah, it's not just you banging the drum on this. I mean, just today on the day we're recording, we've just seen the report come out from the post trade workforce, which is really going big on the you know the benefits of automation. Talking about uh, LEIs and and moving away from from manual processes. So even if you feel like it's something that you're talking about a lot, it's still relevant and it still needs to be said. And you know, on on that topic, another thing that has come up certainly what I've seen a lot more recently is the use of UTIs, um, you know, unique uh, transaction identifiers, the T's for transaction, right, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it could, we could have thought of a better acronym for that, really, couldn't we? But um, yeah, it's definitely transaction. Let's <laughs> <laughs> make sure that's right. So this is something I even I know Swift have touted the benefits for as well. And it, it, I'm familiar with it because in a past life, I was covering the derivative space when EMIR was introduced. But what, could you tell us a bit about the benefits of UTIs when it comes to securities? No, no, I think it's an absolutely very relevant and great question. And I really don't like to answer a question with a question. But I'd say, why wouldn't the securities market not want a single trade identifier? You know, that could be part of that transaction throughout its entire life cycle. I mean, the benefits are potentially immense. Um, the UTI... Um, 
it, it can allow and will allow greater transparency of the trade at any point in its life cycle. You know, it's going to allow participants to expedite exceptions. It can aid more accurate post-trade an, um, analytics. I mean, to name just a few things. So this is the reason why we at DTCC have enhanced our central trade manager platform, what everyone knows as CTM, to create a UTI for every single transaction that's matched on CTM. So our clients can start to mm. use this UTI within their messaging to their settlement network. And I've said it before, I honestly strongly believe the securities market can take a leaf out of the book from the derivatives market, like you mentioned, John, which, as you know, used to be very paper-based and a very manual place to be in. But, you know, it's, it's electronified, it's progressed, it's adapted and embraced automation with open arms, in, you know, in the last decade, whereas we've still got some firms using faxes to settle securities transactions. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. I mean, you could go through entire back office system and post-trade processes and just pick out all these different factors where you say, why wouldn't you do this? Mm. Why aren't they doing that? I mean, is it is it cost? Is it time? Is it, you know, uh, priorities from, from the, the, the upper levels? Yeah. And think of it another way, right? All these people are talking about um, blockchain, DLT, which are obviously going to be part of the post-trade infrastructure at some point, right? It's, it's going to happen, crypto and, and tokenization. But if you can build te that sort of technology, surely you can build technology to take in a reference number and be able to ingest it and then pass it where it needs to go. It baffles me. What do you, what do you see as the roadmap to kind of industry-wide adoption then uh, outside of you know, just using <laughs> the DTCC uh, offerings? <laughs> yeah, I'll stop using my platform names. I'm not here to sell anything because you guys are cutting me off. Um, but I mean, of course, it's going to be a slow journey, right? As it requires all players in the post-trade space to be able to ingest the UTI, you know, they've got to bring it into their own architecture. And then more importantly, be able to pass it through the post-trade chain, whether that's like kind of down through sub-agents and back up towards the chain, towards the participants. I mean, our friends over at Swift are doing a fantastic job in promoting use of UTIs and cash securities markets. And, you know, and their focus group is doing some really, really good work in bringing the community together. But there is a lot of fragmentation across, you know, the post-trade market in Europe. There's multiple CSDs, multiple custodians, sub-agents, you know, and these all form part of that post-trade chain. So it does honestly really rely on all parties to play their role over time. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, and Matt, under the topic of settlement efficiency, we've got to talk about T plus one in the US. Well, T plus one in general everywhere, I guess, but obviously DTCC have made this move to, to get things uh, going in, in the US. But, you know, it's certainly been a busy couple of years at DTCC as well. I, there's so much kind of market infrastructure innovation coming out with projects. Um, uh, I can't remember all the names, but there's ION, isn't there? Yeah. There's one of them. And uh uh, obviously uh, another one just come out as well but uh it's yeah you've embarked on this t plus one journey uh, which has sparked a, a lot of debate and i think in a, in a positive way but in terms of settlement efficiency you know, where are the benefits here and maybe uh, let's start with the benefits and then maybe we can come on to some of the, the challenges and the, the debates that have taken place yeah yeah of course i mean as you said it's a very topical question i think t plus one is, is going to become the new kind of cfdr conversation point over the next couple of years and obviously the US markets have decided to, to, you know, to start to investigate this in a lot more detail with a view of moving the market to T plus one at some point in 2024. Um, but we talk about the primary benefits and I'll, I'll just focus on the US market because that's, you know, what, what we're doing at the moment. And the benefits of T plus one in the US market, they're, you know, they're really focused on risk reduction and capital efficiency gains. So um, recent analysis that DTCC conducted, we estimated that around about 
a 41% reduction in the volatility component of the NSCC margin um, requirement. You know, that, can, that, or that itself can result in billions and billions of dollars in savings for our member firms. There's also, yeah. of course, there's going to be increased operational efficiency as firms start to adopt, you know, better industry standards and, and solutions, you know, to modify their systems and processes so they can further develop automation and that straight through processing that's needed. There's also um, very specific US factors like the alignment of portfolio shares with the mutual funds, and they currently settle two plus one. So that will also help with the cash management aspect. So they're like the, the, the real big kind of benefits that we're going to see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's move on to some challenges. You know, it, it's obviously a, a day less. So what? Mm. Uh, ov- obviously, there's, there's clear benefits, but what are the, the challenges and the, the adjustments that people are going to have to make? Yeah, again, it's kind of what well, we start to look back to what happened, and not just in the US, like, but globally. You know, the move from T three to T two. There's there's so many factors that are involved. It, it makes you laugh when you speak to certain people in the front office or the investment making decisions that are banks brokers you know credit institutions they'll think kind of post-trade settlement and that's it and it all just happens instantly but there's not there's loads of factors there's there's um fx exposure there's spot currency settlement rates there's corporate actions and dividends that need to be taken into account so there's a whole raft and remit and if you were to see some of the project playbooks that, that need to go along with this you'd understand why each kind of step of that post-trade journey it kind of warrants its very own working group and a team that covers you know multiple parts of the post-trade world to be able to tackle the issues identify the issues and then more importantly uh, come up with a way to to overcome the issues so we can get to this this t plus one market so you quite rightly mentioned that dtc is leading the charge along with other organizations but what we're really doing is building and preparing for the move to t plus one with an eye towards t zero in the future However, moving to T0 now, now would be a significant undertaking and involve immense changes to business processes now that are going to impact investors and products. So T0 may one day become an industry-wide standard, but significant analysis you know, remains to determine the cost-benefit of that sort of move. And discussions around shortening the settlement cycle often turn to T0, like I mentioned. So DTCC, along with other market infrastructures, actually do already have the capability to settle on T0. And we already clear and settle transactions on a same-day basis with, I think, well over like a million same-day transactions being processed each day as our participants request. But I think the real key point to make is that real-time gross settlement differs a lot from T0 netting. And given the volume of securities that are processed daily and the financing and inventory management concerns, Real-time growth settlement doesn't really seem to be the feasible option for the industry right now. Yeah, and it comes up a lot, doesn't it? And uh, probably to the point of ad nauseum over the last, <laughs> you know, ever since, ever since the, uh, the the GameStop saga. But I think it is is good to kind of put the record straight on that. And like you say, you are you're taking steps and, and exploring it, and it, and it's already uh, yeah, there's capabilities there already. So. It's um it's an interesting journey that the US is going to take, and then obviously Canada is going to follow. India made the the shift to T plus one, um, you know, in quite a quite a quick time frame. But do you think this is going to pick up in Europe as well, Matt? The conversation around T plus one, I think it's it's starting to certainly, maybe in a, unavoidable. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I don't see how it can't. I mean, we we know that some of the EU policymakers um, and regulators are now starting to you know conduct more kind of in-depth T plus one scenario conversations. And that can be with the national competent authorities. It can be with the, the prominent trade associations. So I think it's one of those things that will happen. I mean, it was quite, it was 
kind of the reverse, wasn't it, back in 2014 when Europe, or when CSDR brought in T plus two to Europe before you know, other parts of the world, and then the US and Canada followed after that. So, you see, I, I, I can't see how Europe won't be at T1 in some point in the next maybe, let's call it three to five years. Um, I think that would be the norm. And, and as things do become more automated, technology evolves, and there's an appetite for like T1 netting, T1 clearing, and obviously T1 settlement, I think it's going to be the only way we can travel. Absolutely. And the journalist in me, Matt, loves when uh, people make a bold claim and put a, put a year. <laughs> and that's my claim, not the DCCC's, that's the Matt Johnson claim, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There's the disclaimer. Now, Matt, we, the one thing we didn't discuss on CSDR, I think you mentioned it, but I want to go back to it, the, you know, the introduction of buy-ins. So from my perspective and what I read from ESMA, the communication seems a little vague to me in terms of when it might be introduced, why it might be introduced, is it still on the table? You know, a buy-in still inevitable, and where where do you think that point is? Maybe you could could clear that up for us a bit. Oh, you know what? I thought this was going to be the first CSDR related conversation where buy-ins wasn't going to be brought up, but you you pulled me right back, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. So the, the dreaded buy-in <laughs> question. I mean, to be honest, it's really hard to come up with something new on this subject. So you know, it all comes down to the level one CSDR text and the way that was written. Um, that caused pretty much all of the animosity to binds. I mean, liquidity has always been, you know, at the forefront of that debate. But I personally am not sure whether we ever, or whether we did, or whether we ever will, come to a decision on when is liquidity more important than settlement, and vice versa. You now, when is settlement more important than liquidity? I mean, as you've referenced, the EU policymakers have made it clear that binds are something that will be implemented if EU settlement performance doesn't improve. However, as you said, it's not overly clear what that required settlement rate is. And then also, how long will the policymakers wait to implement buy-ins? And I think the other elephant in the room that needs to be kind of uh, addressed is the requirement for an institution to use a buy-in agent. We now know that from June 2022, there won't be any buy-in agents active in Europe. So clearly, that's something that's going to need to be addressed by the CSDR review. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, at least we left it till later on to, <laughs> to, to address by about it. <laughs> that that was something that got a bit a bit tedious, certainly towards the end of last year and, and the start of last year, trying to uh, guess the moves of, of the regulators in regards to buy-ins. It suddenly deflected a bit of the attention from what was actually coming into force. I think. Yeah, completely agree. It's, I think it's going to be the gift that keeps on giving because it's kind of sitting there on the sideline now waiting to be substituted in. So, um, yeah, we'll see how that one pans out. Well, look, Matt, just to, to finish things off, I was wondering if there's yeah, any other points you wanted to touch on or yeah, predictions you might want to make in terms of, of how the post-trade environment might evolve over the next uh, two to three years, let's say. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, I mean, the main one, I think we kind of addressed it, but more jurisdictions, you know, will probably start to look into accelerated settlement cycles, which could start to look like, you know, potentially a global T plus one settlement rate uh, for all of the major markets around the world. I don't think you can ignore the rise of digital tokenization, central bank digital currencies, I think that's definitely things that will be explored in greater detail and probably will be much more amplified over the next one to two years. It's certainly something very close to our hearts with some of the projects you mentioned, such as ION, and then something we, we're very, very much keeping our finger on the pulse. And I think maybe the third one is, you know, changes to post-trade processing as we see it today. You know, looking at really like sense, well, what I would call sensible opportunities, such as 
you know, enhanced netting in cash securities between buyers and sellers. Um, you know, maybe with a broader view of introducing clearing models between institutional buy side and sell side firms by way to, you know, reduce the amount of reduce the settlement volume for one thing, you know, reduce the amount of, of cash that's being passed over, having guarantees in place via a CCP, um, all seem to be very sensible things. And I think will start to be explored in a lot more detail again over the next couple of years. Look, Matt, uh, this has been a great conversation. I think we've touched on all the areas of, of assessment efficiency and, and given a pretty comprehensive overview. So I uh, just want to say thank you so much for being on the show today and, and for your time and thoughts. And I hope you've enjoyed the episode. No, as again, always enjoyed talking to yourself. Uh, it's great to be involved. And thanks again for, uh, for having me on. 